Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsson Bambra. And my name is Svara Ogor. And today we are discussing the movie Fat Girl from 2001, also called Amasseur in French, which is the original language of the movie. And uh, incidentally, not a direct translation of the title. No, it means uh, for my sister or to my sister. Which I find is maybe a, a bit more poignant title for the movie. But in any case, it's a movie directed by Catherine Prela, and it stars Anaïs Rebou as Anaïs Pignon, and Roxanne Mesquila as Elena Pignon, and Libero de Rienzo as Fernando. Yeah, and it's um, a story about two sisters, two young girls. The one, Anaïs, is 12 and Elena is 15. They're on a family holiday with their parents, and they're kind of... Um, in their budding sexuality, discovering boys and their own desires. And um, they meet an Italian student who kind of hooks up with Elena. They start a relationship. And um, there's a, some troubling situations between those two. And then um, the father has to leave, so the mother has to drive the um, sisters back to the home. And uh, they have a troubling incident at the end <laughs> yes. with a, inside their car kind of a explosive uh, situation occurs yeah. it ends with horrible murder yeah and rape yeah quite disturbing uh, towards the end there mm. uh, but yet I would say it's uh, not so disturbing throughout it's quite quite a human movie in my opinion it, it feels sort of small in a way in a very good way because the focus is really on the two sisters yeah. and their sort of interpersonal relationship and their Sort of uh, burgeoning sexuality and coming to grips with who they are and mm. um, themselves as women. Yeah, and it's quite like the interplay between uh, between Anais and Elena is is very good. Yeah, yeah, and Anais is the titular fat girl. She's the younger one and kind of in some ways more mature intellectually. Whilst Elena is, she's a bit older. She's very pretty. She just gets a lot of attention. It comes off uh, as a bit more naive, maybe. Yeah, and a bit sentimental, perhaps. Yep. Um, and uh, the parents are they're kind of distant, really. They're not really that involved in their lives. No, the father is just uh, clearly more involved with his business. Mm. And he, he says that he hates holidays. Yeah, and he's yeah, always yeah. on the phone with his shareholders. Or yeah, whatever. And then he disappears. I mean, he's only yeah. there for a couple of scenes or something. Yeah, he's, uh, he's not very present in yeah. their lives. But even the mother, who's... She's there in more scenes, but she's like not very invested in the emotional lives of her daughters, even as they go through quite intense and traumatic things. She's she's not really interested. At one point, she says about Anais, well, she can't be so sad because she hasn't lost her appetite. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, she's quite dismissive. Yeah, and the, uh, as far as I recall, there's no really signs of affection or anything mm. like that. She, she seems quite cold and distant. Yeah, very focused on herself, I would say. Which is in stark contrast to uh, the two sisters, which are very affectionate. Yeah. And even though they, they fight a lot and, yeah. and have some really, they say some nasty things to each it's, other. It's quite manipulative in a, like a sisterly way. Uh, yeah, but they still have like a real affection for each yeah, other. And yeah. it really shows throughout the movie. And it, mm. and it gives the movie its sort of heart, I mm -hmm. think. Um, it's interesting uh, because the two sisters are so different yeah. and they talk about it amongst themselves. They they find it kind of funny that they're so different, mm -hmm. but they also say that they have like no similarity to their parents. Mm -hmm. It seems like almost them two against the world, yeah, them yeah. two fending for themselves. But also from different perspectives, especially when it comes to boys or sexuality, they have a very different idea, whereas... Anais kind of feels like she doesn't want her first time to be with someone she loves. Elena is the opposite. She's kind of very invested in the idea of love and the romantic first time. Yeah, she seems a lot more sentimental. But yet both of them are weirdly mature in some ways mm -hmm. and weirdly childish in others, yeah. which is like, that's how your teens are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it's very well portrayed. Yeah, beautifully uh, acted, really. Yeah, Catherine yeah. Brulat has a real sensitivity when it comes mm. to, I guess, instructing and, and um, directing these young actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes off as incredibly natural, yeah. and which is a hard thing to do with so young actors. Yeah, it has to be really well cast, but then you have to be able to deal with them as well. So that's uh, Yeah, there's, like, there's multiple hoops to jump through mm. to make this sort of thing work. Mm -hmm. 
she's actually, she has a history of doing interesting casting. One of her other more famous films is called Anatomy of Hell, where she's cast the porn actor Rocco Sifredi. Yeah, and she's been involved in sort mm. of a semi-scandals and not yeah. having her stuff released mm. and um, because of portrayals of young sexuality and mm. stuff like that. This one in particular, I think, uh, was banned in parts of Canada. Because it, I mean, it does have nudity of the children and, and shows sexual scenes between the Italian student and uh, the 15-year-old Elena. And the scenes are quite long, but I, th- I find it it's very non-exploitative. Yeah. It feels very, like, not empowering, but it feels very realistic. Like, the portrayals of sexuality feel very nuanced and... Um... Yeah, I mean, there's a definite... Well, this is a specific scene where Elena has made a kind of a deal with Fernando that he's supposed to come in the nighttime. And it's the same room that Anais is sleeping in. So she has to pretend to be asleep when this older guy comes. And he's probably all right. Like 21, 22, something like that. At least not younger than that. Yeah. He's in his third year of college. Yeah, he's studying law. Yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's Italian. And it seems quite privileged. His father yeah. is in sort of a, a lawyer working in international law. He yeah. drives around in sort of a, a vintage yeah. sports car. And yeah. um, he seems uh, like he gets anything he wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's on holiday in uh, France and he's picking up young girls, basically. He's yeah. a bit of a sleazebag. I, like, technically, he's a pedophile, right? Yeah, he, yeah. He, he does have sex with a 15-year-old as a 22-year-old. Um, Is there a nuance between a pedophile and a pederast, where it's prepubescent or not? Well, there are distinctions there. Hmm. What I find it interesting in this movie is that it's not really about pedophilia so no, much as, no. like, because I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of female friends of mine, mm. and they, like, it's quite common for women to have these sort of experiences mm. with older men and of course it's fucking horrible but i think it's interesting to see it portrayed because i think a lot of women can relate to this sort of issue like i remember Mm. back when i was 14 15 Mm. i had friends of mine female friends of mine who had like boyfriends who were like 22 23 and you know at the time you didn't think so much about Mm. it like you thought it was a bit weird Mm. but like Mm. in hindsight it's really creepy yeah and that's kind of what the film does as well i mean the parents they know about this fernando guy and they just kind of uh, say, oh, it's young love. Like they uh, bring him to breakfast or yeah. whatever, and it's, uh, yeah. They don't really react to it. And also, Anais, she witnesses two sexual encounters between Elena and Fernando. And while she's obviously very uncomfortable, and it is extremely manipulative, he's coercing her, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. She also normalizes it in a way, where in this situation, she's emotionally troubled, but... She doesn't, in the aftermath, contextualize it as a, as a problem or as rape, really. No, she sort of internalizes it and normalizes mm. it. I mm. think you're quite right there. And I think the like there's three scenes I think the movie sort of pivots around. Mm. It's the two sex scenes mm. uh, with Fernando, mm. and then there's the, the final sort of um, climax of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and they both tie together. I think yeah. after the, as you said, it's sort of, and I sort of witnesses these sex scenes, mm at a way too young age mm. and she sort of normalized it and they talk about it and it's sort of they sort of inure themselves to this fernando guy mm. and the thought of having sex this young and and i find it sort of depressing in the final scene mm. they park yeah they've been driving for a long time in the motorways it's very claustrophobic and intense and then they stop up to rest and the mother falls asleep yeah and then uh, as as anais is sitting in the backseat of the car and eating some gummy candy very suddenly this crazed lunatic with an axe sort of chops through the front windshield and chops her sister elena in the head yeah. with an axe yeah. and then he chokes her mother like any's yeah. mother and then he uh stares down Anais. she gets out of the car and they sort of back out into the mm. a wooded area and he rapes her mm. and uh, when the police eventually arrive in the morning mm she claims she wasn't raped. Yeah. The police officer says she denies being raped and then she kind of turns around more or less towards the camera and says, uh, but you don't have to believe me. You choose whether or not you believe me. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but more or less something like that. Yeah, and that ties so strongly Mm. with everything that's happened between Mm. her, her sister and Fernando. Yeah, yeah. Because there's two different types of rape, right? There's the coercive type, which is, you know, very common. My impression is that a lot of women's first sexual encounters have that kind of pattern 
and then this this extreme kind of rape, which is the like the official definition of rape in a way. There's stranger danger, monstrous guy out of the woods. Uh, yeah, the sort of stereotypical type of rape, yeah. which is explicitly less, violent. Yeah, which is probably less common than the sort mm. of manipulative mm. and like the type of rape that probably occurs the most. And I, both are, of course, horrible. Mm. And clearly mirroring each other in mm. this movie. The final scene is almost parodic in a way. Yeah. The whole movie until that point has been so minute nuances mm. and very human and very dialogue mm. driven and very tender almost in portraying these two young sisters. And then the final scene is just like we spoke earlier about, uh, I call it sort of not a Deus Ex Machina, but mm. more of like a axe machina or whatever, <laughs> just throwing an axe in the wrenches <laughs> and seeing what The axe happens. in the machine. An axe in the machine, yeah. And it's it's almost silly. Mm. Like it's yeah. it's of course horrible, but it really doesn't match the tone of the movie. Well, it's interesting because it, it comes at kind of a, a the situation is just silent, and it comes as a shock and very very suddenly. And it's really weird as he crushes the window and murders Elena. The mother doesn't wake up; she's still asleep. And there's a moment there where Anais and the murderer's eyes meet, and they have quite quite a long amount of eye contact. Yeah, uh, and then he kind of chokes and murders the mother and and he slowly starts to leave the car as if trying to escape yeah and Ais um, is weirdly passive yeah yeah and he's shock you know yeah of uh, course it's actually nice to see that kind of very realistic in some ways you'd think of it as irrational but that's what many people's reaction to that kind of situation would be like you're just incapable of doing anything yeah yeah, yeah. and i love how sort of mundane mm. the scene is yeah. almost portrayed because there's I think in a in a worse movie mm. you'd have like hysteric screaming or some more yeah. obvious reaction running it. away. But yeah, shock can make you react in in irrational ways. Mm. Um, I like that aspect of it, and and also I I think the the sort of stark contrast mm. between the because there's been like a really long car scene yeah. before, and it's been going on for quite some time, mm. and it's quite tedious and uh, intentionally so, and it's mm. sort of gets more and more sleepy and boring. But also it's it's quite claustrophobic because you have this... The mother is obviously not comfortable driving the car. There's some tension there also with the trucks. Yeah, the big and, trucks. Uh, and you, you have these shots of trucks looking in the mirror and at the car. And there's a feeling that they're almost... Something's yeah, going to happen yeah. with the car or maybe yeah. an accident. An or accident or, or later on, before the actual axe murdering, you have one of the big trucks driving past and this guy looking down at an ice. And yeah, with like a doll in his uh, yeah. mirror. And interesting, the doll has the same coloured clothes as Elena does in that scene there. Oh. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's of any significance, but I noticed it. Because there's a tension building up. As you say, there's some tedium about this, not much happening, but it's uncomfortable. It's almost a bit horror-like, I think. Yeah, it's, it's claustrophobia. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I think it's well done. Like, mm. I'm a bit ambivalent mm. about the final scene because mm. it's so sort of out of left field almost mm. and feels bizarre and, mm. and uh, sort of dreamlike in yeah. the way that it's tacked on at the end there. But, it does feel but at the same time, it's very does really relate to the themes of the movie and like all through the movie there are these really these really interesting takes on young women and the way they perceive men in the mm. world yeah like the scene with the truck driver mm. driving past like mm. that's one like just a little hint of sort of this awful masculinity that so many women encounter in the world yeah because they're, they're kind of finishing off with uh, the roles as children and now the the male gaze is kind of setting on them and kind of defining them in, yeah. in a completely different way and you know they have their own sexuality as well it's not just as victims of no 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 absolutely uh, they speak quite openly about their own like sexual desires and interests yeah they're quite frank and um, also like um anais is quite clearly sort of jealous of her sister yeah. and and there's a tension there and she does seem to idealize the idea of having sex because, you know, her sister talks about it and does it and everything sort of affects them in a very, like, I like how non-judgmental it is towards the two female main characters. Yeah, I love how yeah. their views and their thoughts and opinions are taken seriously. Yeah. Even though you can quite clearly see in some instances that they're being sort of led astray or being gaslighted or being manipulated but it's a very honest take uh, on these two characters yeah i had a quote there's an interview with Catherine brela from the berlin film festival this is a translation of course and she says about a nice um 
She's not an object of desire because, as she herself says, she's too young, which is true. Others think she's too young, but she doesn't consider herself too young. She's 13, already well-developed, but they ignore that. So others deny her body, and to deny it herself, she turns fat. Obviously, it's awkward being fat. You can't say an obese girl feels good about herself, but oddly enough, it takes care of her, meaning it protects her from becoming a product of society's norms. Since her body makes her unlovable, since she isn't looked at and desired, she's more intelligent about the world. She can create herself and be herself with a kind of rebellion, which is painful, but at the same time, she exists. I'm just going to jump ahead a bit. It could be considered embarrassing being extra fat, but also as a way of asserting possession of the world. She exists, she's there, all her movements are conscious and significant. She's much more lucid and mature, but at the same time she suffers, because everyone wants to be part of seducing and being seduced. That's really interesting. Let's talk about the fat girl who yeah. being overweight. I think that's an interesting thing in this yeah. movie. Because it has to be said, while the French title is originally To My Sister, as far as I understand, Braillard herself, her initial conception was Fat Girl as the title. But I think she felt guilty in approaching the... Um, I believe this is from the some of the text written for the Criterion release. She wrote about feeling guilty about uh, approaching Anais and asking her if she wants to act in a film called Fat Girl. <laughs> some issues there. And it's had several titles, actually. Also, Story of a Whale, which is even more, <laughs> you know, weird. But as far as I understand, her initial idea was even the English title Fat Girl. So it's very central to the theme of the film. Yeah, I thought about that, actually, because um, it's always a thing when you sort of cast people to be unattractive or ugly. Yeah. Like, mm. there's a sort of... Um, so sort of being honest about that can be quite hurtful mm. to many people. Yeah, and um, specifically when there's a child involved, I think. It's... Yeah, and that compounds the issue. But it, it's an interesting title because it, it is a huge theme in this movie. Mm. To me, it's sort of it wouldn't necessarily have to be fatness even. It could have been something else mm. that you do to take control. Like it could have been yeah. cigarettes or it could have been drugs or alcohol. Yeah. In this case, it's food. Yeah. But often when you feel a lack of control of yourself, you tend to... Or often, especially addictive personalities, can tend to um, use, for instance, food as a crutch, as mm. something that you do feel you have control over, or something that you do in sort of a, as a response to people's demands on you. Mm. Like if you feel, especially in your teenage years, like if you feel your parents are demanding stuff from you, or society is demanding things from you, then you can uh, sort of uh, go to alcohol, or go to food, or go to something that you imagine you control. It can go the other way around, like denying yourself food as well. Right, right. And I think that's very central to the themes in this movie. But again, I don't think necessarily... Well, it's interesting that it's food because, of course, a lot of the movie deals with sexuality, mm. budding mm. sexuality, and growing up to be a woman from being a mm. child. And, um, of course, how we perceive overweight people contra you know, thinner or more traditionally desirable, how you perceive these people differently in the context of desire is interesting. So I think it works very well in this movie. And there are a lot of scenes of Anais eating, often in a context as well where Fernando and Elena are making out. And I'm not sure if you could call it greedy, but she's eating, you know, she's kind of stuffing herself in an unappetizing, in sort of a clumsy manner. And... Uh, in some ways, I think this is what Braillard is, is working with as she's kind of in the way of denying her own sexuality. She has another impulse that she's... Uh, There's a sort of rebellious intent there in, in sort of a response to her But it's also an, an enjoyment. She's kind of... She's taking pleasure in it. There's a sort of a, a bacchanalian sort of uh, letting loose and, and doing what your desires tell you to do. Mm. In this case, it's food, but it yeah. can also be sexuality. Yeah, also because she's kind of denied the sexuality. That's uh, some of the things that, I, at least she says in that interview, that there's replacement and... Um, yeah, there's a sensuousness there and there's mm. a sort of a... Greed, almost. A gre greed and a, and a sort of bodiliness there. And actually, I have an, another quote. This is very interesting because she talks about herself, Braillard, and her experience, because she's kind of known for incorporating a lot of um, things about her own life, a story, or, or uh, things with fiction in, in different ways. and Sort of autobiographical at times. Yeah, not directly, but she's using elements of her, 
Yeah. Sure. Uh, which a lot of artists do, of course. And she says, when I was 11, I had big breasts and it was horrible because fashion and dignity called for being flat chested. That's what being a dignified woman is, not displaying any visible sexual attributes. If you were unfortunate enough to have a 90 breast size, you were a whore or you couldn't be an intellectual. Have some decency, you were told. What is decency if you have breasts? Do you have to cut them off by a surgeon? What should we have done? Were we walking sexual symbols at 9 and 11 years old? That's why I was locked up, because there was this lecherous gaze over me. I fought for my identity and my dignity with feminine sexual signs, erotic ones. I was erotic for men after all. I was a turn-on at 12, but I was a little girl. I was a little girl. And that's the whole contradiction. We would be better off educating small girls not to be ashamed of their own body. They are not bits of meat. Yeah, that's really interesting. Also, I should say, there is, in general, there's been a sort of mm. issue in France with pedophilia and being attracted to very young children. Mm. There's been a sort of pervasive problematicness, especially in sort of artistic milieus yeah. and uh, in the intelligentsia, musicians, etc., where you know, it's been sort of normalized to, to sexualize young, especially young girls. Yeah. Famously, both Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir had liaisons with quite young people. Yeah, you could also see it in, like, Leon, the movie, Absolutely. and uh, uh, what's his name again? Uh, famous French musician. It's very pervasive, actually. Uh, yeah. And a lot of French films do have the kind of very old man, quite young girl <laughs> relationships. Right, it's, right, it's right. It's very strange. So, so, in a sense, this movie feels even more important and honest mm. Mm. in its portrayal of this very sort of humble, humble way towards the female characters. Because it's clearly about them, but it's also about the sort of masculine constructs around them yeah. and the way they navigate that. Yeah. And it's very compelling. It's also kind of sad and mm. depressing. Uh, but very touching as well. Very touching. This movie has a real heart. Yeah. And it's very touching and very sad because it does have that heart. Because there's a lot of tragedy in this movie. Mm. But at the same time, it feels quite mundane and down mm. to earth, the tragedies they experience right up, up until the sort of climax of the movie. Mm. But it does feel very... Like, I, I love how Catherine Brillat depicted the driving scene, for mm. instance. I thought that was a very, very clever touch to this movie. Mm. The way it's so drawn out, but at the same time tense mm. and boring, and the way it's capped with that violent scene at the end, which I, again, I'm a bit ambivalent towards because mm. it's so out of left field. But I do think I like it. It's just weird. It's a shock to the system, but it kind of also forces you to think in a way. That the way that it's kind of silly also makes it um, so obvious that it's a film in a way, that you're, you're, you're yeah, starting your right, questions. Right. And that's really useful in the way that kind of prepares you for the idea of the different types of rape, where one is very, you know, obviously the violent rape and the other is the normalised... Uh, sort of societal, patriarchal, manipulative and normalising yeah. way... Both are insidious as fuck, but like you say, it sort of brings them into contrast. Mm. And also, it, it's it's so silly because like he's like this axe murderer from some sort of <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. some sort of uh, rather some sleazy slasher, yeah, bad film. Yeah, it does feel like it's taken out from a much worse movie. Yeah. He's not a character. He's just no, no, no. Uh, he's just a crazed axe murderer. Yeah. Like he does not have a mother and a father. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. And I think it's a fun movie to talk about because mm. it does have a lot of aspects that are interesting, a lot of contrasts and dimensions and dynamics that are yeah. worth talking about. And I think it's a good movie to sort of experience part of the, the female experience, I think. It seems like that to me. And it's quite interesting. The film ends with a freeze frame of Anais as she's told the police officers don't necessarily need to believe her whether or not she's been raped, which is, you know, a throwback to 400 blows. And in that movie, you have the, the young boy who's kind of a escaped from this oppressive school system and he's running down the beach and... Other boys in this film have done it before and they've been captured and there's kind of a sense that this is probably going to happen to him as well. But the film stops as he's running on a freeze frame of his face and it's very ambivalent narratively, but also his expression. You can read hopefulness or uncertainty. This kind of thing has been copied by a lot of films. Like, yeah, the, the sort of uh, visual reference. I feel I've seen it yeah, quite a few yeah. times. Bonnie and Clyde is a famous example. Uh, yeah, and it's, um, it's sort of on the nose. Yeah, uh, yeah. But clearly it's intended to be that way. Yeah, and also Harriet feels quite relevant because it, it's about the ambivalence about Anais' feelings about 
being sexually abused and her denial about that is yeah. it self-denial or almost a sort of a way of taking power mm. back yeah uh, it seems to me you can read it that way of course mm. that's sort of internalizing yeah. and and uh, glossing over the issue but it's you can you can interpret that final mm. scene in quite a few ways but also as you as an audience you feel kind of ambivalent because i mean the film is very good but you're also troubled by it it kind of puts you in awkward situations and it really confronts you with this last yeah image. yeah you're, you're almost implicated in it mm. <laughs> i like that aspect of the the final part of the movie it does draw you in in a way that the start and the middle of the movie really doesn't and of course it's constructed that way to great effect mm. i would say there's a few scenes I find particularly interesting. You have um, you have a scene with Anais in the swimming pool where she's swimming back and forth between swimming pool poles and she's talking to them as if they were her lovers. Yeah, the, there's the pole and there's the ladder. Yeah. And she sort of swims back and forth mm. and uh, sort of has this play dating these fictional, like she's imagining or she's pretending yeah. they're men. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the people she's in a relationship with. It's like a child, you know, imagining things, but also in the context of, you know, sexuality and relationships. She's playing out this kind of, am I dating you or you or who am I going to have sex with? And it's really, really adult and mature, yeah. like the way she nuances those characters yeah. and herself feels way more mature mm. than Elena mm. and her uh, relationship with Fernando. Mm. It's interesting because uh, Anais is clearly a very intelligent young woman. Yeah. And it really shows the difference between, you know, being a child and being an adult in a way. Yeah, yeah, because she plays out these mm. mature and quite complex scenarios mm. of mm. love and sexuality. Mm. But at the same time, she's a child playing in a pool. That sort of dichotomy is just sort of fascinating. And this thing that children do, they can, in their heads, they can transform. You have a, a stick in your hand, it becomes a sword. Yeah. You know, adults don't really do that so much. Uh, this pole and this ladder, they become lovers and she kisses them and... Um, it really ties the sort of adult life mm. with the childhood mm. in a very spot-on way. It's a very mm. excellent way of showing that period in your life where you're sort of straddling both sides of the adult-child divide. Yeah, that's an excellent scene. And there's a few moments in the film that, you know, when they're driving the cars, the mother's kind of fed up, so she turns up the volume and some music which is really loud, and Anais asks her to please turn it down. She doesn't care. She, she just wants to listen to the music. And this is kind of the moment in, if this was an American film, you would use that kind of music as um, a tool of engaging the audience. Now we're listening to some upbeat, upbeat music <laughs> that drives the audience, and now we're driving the car and it feels cool and interesting. It, in this film, it starts off with just this, it feels more intrusive, as uh, the scene leaves from the car and into like a gas station where they're eating food and like the intrusive elements is even stronger. The, the music is still going and it kind of cuts off after a bit. And it's not really used as a way to engage the audience, but kind of more putting them off or, you know, emphasizing the discord in a yeah, sense. Yeah, the tension, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. At the same time, it's such a mundane and mm. like the quotidianness and the sort of tediousness of the journey is like, it reminds me of taking like car trips, car holidays. Yeah, when I was yeah, a kid, absolutely. Right? It's so long and <laughs> They're <drawn> boring, <laughs> boring as fuck. And the way that's sort of done in a very realistic way, yeah. very believable way, but also with the addition of this tension and weirdness and the like, the discordant music and the there's a lot of very good scenes in this movie. And and she says of herself, um, she says, I consider myself a painter. I'm not a decorative painter, uh, whom I love very much, who's a very pretty painter. I would rather be Francis Bacon. I'd rather confront myself with the material, expose the bare flesh on the screen, which is obviously not seen as part of feminine nature. But I am a woman anyway, not a man. I love that. Of course, we both love Francis Bacon, mm. so it's always yeah. nice to hear him name drop. She's quite talented. She's she's an author too. She's yeah. uh, been an actor. Like she's she's done a lot of different stuff, and, and clearly she views herself as sort of a painter too. Mm. She's very very well rounded as a creative, and I yeah. I really respect that. And a, v a very intelligent director, I would say, how she handles the kids. Because uh, there's this one specific sex scenes which is. It's very difficult to watch where um, the initial scene where Fernando seduces Elena and they're kind of lying next to each other. He's talking about these promises of love. She's an object of desire for him, not of love, but she's young. She doesn't really understand that. So, so she's kind of invested in this idea of love yeah. and he's promising that. And Even it, though she's very hesitant, hesitant on yeah. 
telling her he's really interested in her, affectionate-wise, mm. uh, romance-wise. They even broached the subject of marriage and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to older viewers, it's clearly super manipulative. Yeah. So it's very, very unpleasant to watch being manipulated. And she says uh, that she doesn't want to, you know, give her virginity. And then he proposes anal intercourse instead. Yeah. And she's really hesitant about that, naturally enough. But he manages to persuade her. It's like silly arguments, like, yeah, yeah. yeah all the girls do it. Yeah. Like, it's, and it, it's, it's so transparent. And it's a sign of love. You know, if you do this for me, then that, that's a sign of love. Yeah. And that scene is mostly one take... And Brillat said about that, she, she, she couldn't divide it up. She couldn't like shoot bits of it and go back and shoot it more uh, in terms of her actors as well. It would be very difficult and unpleasant. So she, she said she couldn't, she had difficulty talking to Roxanne about this. She, she kind of just initiated it and they had um, quite a few takes. They had 20 takes. And she said Ooh. like the 10th take was exquisite. It was really good. It was beautiful. But she kind of pushed on and, you know, Doing this sort of thing for film, I mean, that's um, that's your whole day. So you and it's a dolly shot. So there's a lot of crew in the room, and she's she's naked, the girl. Uh, so you you're kind of blocking out, and you're preparing it, and then you shoot and reshoot and shoot, and um, and she used the last take, the twentieth take. She said it has like the exquisite nature of the tenth take, except it was more painful, yeah, and more muted in a way, and that's very interesting. Uh, She's obviously very in tuned into how these, um, how to work with, with actors, I think. Yeah. yeah, there's a real sense of intelligence in the way she goes about shooting these scenes. And the way she's done that is, I think, very, that's the correct way of doing that scene. Of course, it has to be very awkward and, and painful and tiring to, to shoot that scene so many times in such a long take. But it translates really well mm. to the the sort of painfulness of that scene. And again, it's super realistic. You're really invested in it, which makes it all the more uh, harrowing mm. <laughs> as you're watching it. She also said that this is also from the Berlin uh, interview. Uh, she talks about because seeing it is such a long take. You have to be like emotionally invested over time. It's something like a theater actor would be used to, but sounds quite young at this point. So she said that this is kind of one of the scenes where she learned to be an actor because you have to be invested over time. And towards the end, she apologized for forcing actors to endure. But at that point, it was normalized uh, in a way. And um, yeah, that reminds me of the movie Kids we watched from yeah. 1995, where also one of the lead actors' first scene ever as an actor mm. was this long sex scene. Mm. So quite similar scene to this, actually, where he's sort of convincing a young woman that he loves her. Yeah. Uh, but really, he just wants to Oh, he's to fuck. such a sleazeball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is sort of less funny. Yeah. But it's interesting that the sort of dynamic there of making young actors do this very intense and long sex scenes. But it has to be said... But there's a follow-up to this movie called Sex is Comedy. Yeah. Which is uh, basically kind of a reenactment of this situation. Yeah, inspired by this very... Yeah, and it's the same actor also, uh, Roxanne Mesquida. She plays an actor who's going to have a sex scene with the person she detests. Apparently she didn't like this Fernando uh, actor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't seen it, actually. As far as I understand, it's more like a comedy of situations type... um, and she also, at parts, talks about Fat Girl uh, in terms of being funny. I have to admit, I didn't laugh much myself, but there's, uh, she talks about it having like a sitcom element to it. I'm not, not quite <laughs> sure how to pass that. No, I'm not sure I agree with the assessment. Mm. There are some sort of, I wouldn't say funny moments, but there are some, some sort of offbeat, mm. like uh, especially Anais uh, and her eating mm. and like the play talking to them. Mm. Like there's some sort of not... not laugh out loud mm. funny scenes but some quirky moments definitely yeah. and one of the more awkward moments is uh after fernando has he's promised to marry he's even given his grandmother's ring to uh, elena yeah, his opal yeah prized possession and so he managed to convince her to a vaginal sex um but later on the grandmother comes by and she says uh you know this is a really awkward situation but my grandson gave away a ring it wasn't his to give one of the things I really like about this, because she has a little bit of a speech. And first she says, like, you know, jewellery like that has a significance because it's uh, proof of the interest of men that you've managed to capture right. or captured you. But it's really inappropriate for your daughter to have this ring. She kind of turns it on her head because it's her jewel that uh, kind of uh, evaluated her as a, as a young woman. But when there's another person who has that 
it just dirty and disgusting. Which, of course, it is as well. But in a sense, she's right because she's so young. Like yeah. she should not be the object of that older man's yeah. desire. But she, but she's also shaming Elena. She's talking to the mother, not to Elena. Elena isn't present. Right, but right, she's, right. But she's shaming her in a way that's really contradictory and ugly as well. And she's kind of you know putting the, the mother in a very awkward position. But again, there's mm. a. There's a, an interesting echo of that scene where they're driving and uh, Elena asks her mother, well, you debuted too, like sexually. And she's, yeah. well, we're not talking about me right yeah. now. Yeah. So again, that's sort of devaluing her experience as a, yeah. as a young woman mm. or, or teenager. Again, with the same scene with, uh, uh, with the grandma and mm. the jewelry, them sort of not taking their experiences seriously, mm. even though they're just as real as, as the older women's yeah. experiences were, right? And they kind of drag Anais into that situation and uh, accuse her of knowing, which she does. And uh, she receives a slap in the face. So she's kind of also punished for the Elena situation. Right. I kind of hate the family. Like, not the sisters, but the mother. And like the way she handles the situation. And and also, there's like no real sense of her... They're in the gas station mm. when they're like they're driving and they take this trip to a gas station and she just, mm. oh, are you eating again? Because uh, mm. and he like throws like some waffles and mm. stuff uh, right after they've eaten sandwiches, yeah. and the mother is like she sort of shames her but then enables her yeah. by buying it. So, yeah. so there's like this weird contradiction yeah. where she both shames her daughter but enables her sort of destructive uh, self-destructive behavior yeah in some ways it's very controlling yeah it's it's disgusting <laughs> i really dislike the way the mother and you know her kids. maybe especially from like a scandinavian perspective like the relationship between adults and children is just so it's so strange and weird cold yeah very like the i said distance. before yeah they're, they're just not invested in the kids at all no. And they're very dismissive of them. And it feels like people who shouldn't have children. Like, <laughs> yeah. Very unloving. And you get the sense that it's not just an individual thing. It's systematic. It's like, that's how adults treat children. You know, if you're annoyed with them, you smack them and they have their shit and you've got your own shit. It's like part of society almost. You know? Yeah, or at least maybe in, in the sort of circles they would frequent mm. uh, or they're sort of part of society. Like they both seem like professional people. Yeah, who, successful people. Yeah, who value success and money or mm. family. Or like that's something you can infer from the sort of moods yeah. and situations in yeah. this movie. But it's not spelled out mm. really because as we talked about earlier, it's really about the two young sisters and their sort of yeah. dealings with yeah. uh, the world of, of men and sexuality. But this sort of family dynamic is looming mm. in the background mm. and it sets some of these scenes in kind of relief and comments on them. Yeah, the, the scenes between the sisters are really nice. And they also... They have a great chemistry. Yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's conflicted and they have a fair amount of like this meta talk where they're saying, yeah, I hate you, but I love you more because you're me. Yeah, there's and, an antipathy uh, there too. Like, And that's that's sort of what I mean mm, by mm. Uh, the way it's, it's so realistically and mm. humbly portrayed because they're not just viewed as mm. these two sisters who love each other dearly, which they do, but mm. there's also a sense of resentment and hate yeah. and jealousy between them both, really. Mm. And there's this age difference and uh, Elena at one point says that she's sort of pissed off about Anais not having to wait as long as she did with doing certain stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're basically treated equally by the parents. That's a very familiar sibling uh, dynamic. Right, right, right. There's a lot of sort of verisimilitude when it comes to sibling dynamics. Mm. And it's well done. It makes you think, really. Mm. But it's also just very realistic to watch. And it serves the movie really well. Yeah. Uh, of course, that's the theme. It's it's sisters. Yeah. Which is why I find the sort of sisters title of the movie is sort of almost a bit better. Because mm. I do think there's some value in the fat girl's title. But I don't think that's really the core of the movie. Tell me your thoughts about... Because I was thinking about this and I didn't feel like I came to any, at least any specific conclusion. What is two or four my sister? What are they discussing there with the title? Like, the way I think about it is the way Anais feels towards her sister or sort of her experiences with her sister or, like, yeah, that's that's how I sort of mm. read the title. I'm not sure if it's meant to be anything more specific than mm. that. What do you think? Well, I mean, it has an exclamation mark at the end. Right. So it's kind of like a salute. Like, but uh, you can you can view it in the, in the sort of context of the final morbid uh, mm. massacre at the mm. end as a sort of... Um, in memoriam, requiem, sort of, 
mm-hmm. uh, looking back at her yeah. time with her sister, for instance. Yeah, that's one way of viewing it. But I, I think there's no real answer to it, but I think you can view it uh, in, in different ways. To me, it just really ties in with the sort of... Well, the just sisterly. the relationship between yeah. the sisters, right? The sisterly theme. Yeah. In a way that I don't think story of a whale would... <laughs> yeah, that's so dismissive. I mean, it's it's kind of like almost hateful. Yeah. I mean, a fat girl has an edge to it. I, li- I like that title because it kind of... It's more direct. Yeah, it initially puts you in the position that this is a confrontational film. Whilst Amon so it almost sounds like it's like a declaration of positive um, vibes. Right. They kind of uh, signify something a bit different. Right. Um, Story of a Whale feels like a way of poeticizing something, some <laughs> malicious sort of intent. You know, it would have been <laughs> fine for a, a film about sea creatures, but about right. like an overweight kid. A whale documentary, I'd be fine about that, <laughs> yeah. but, but not, not, a, not a movie about this, yeah. this young sort of... A, I guess I could accept it if it was from the perspective of, of the young kid who who's fine with this sort of jokingly talking about... If it was um, embracing in a way, but this is so dismissive. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's dismissive and a sort of way of romanticizing it at the yeah, same time yeah. in a way that's really unappealing. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad they went with uh, Fat Girl and uh, Amma Sir. Yeah, but I really like it. It's it's great. Um, yeah, a great movie. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's one of these um, central films in the uh, new extremist movement, and um, she's she's rightly considered one of the contemporary. Uh, really great auteur directors from France. Yeah, um, especially when you view the last scene. I, I can definitely understand why you'd put it in the new French extremism mm. category, but at the same time, it feels like a lot more than that. Of course, mm. initially, like it's a dismissive term and category, mm. but of course, some people have embraced it. At the same time, I, I feel like it's sort of a limiting... It can be, and I, th- I think it's, you know, if you contextualize it in terms of not B film, but like uh, as a genre. I mean, it's it's broader. It's kind of just... It's way broader. It's talking about um, a general tendency of films that uh, confront the audience rather than saying, this type of film, they have these type of traits. Because most of them are very different. Some of them are quite, let's say, horror tropey, some effective, some not. But others are like this, that it's drama that has a, you know, specific themes it wants to do. It does it very well. And it's very confrontational, but it doesn't... And there's violence yeah. and there's uh, rape and there's... But uh, it doesn't offend so directly as some of the others, for example. No, but I, I think you can all agree it fits uh, squarely within the category of mm. unpleasant movies. <laughs> Which I find is a better term for it than the new French extremism, maybe. I don't know. Well, we caught it, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> right here. Pleasant recommendation for us this time. Yes, I do. This time, I I want to recommend a movie, uh, and it's an unpleasant movie. Mm. It's called Ich sehe Ich sehe in German, uh, translated to Good Night, Mommy. For mm. some reason, another sort of discrepancy between the original title and English title. Again, I find the original title better, which implies I see, I see. And the concept is quite simple. It's basically two young twin brothers, and their mother comes home. She's sort of a quasi-famous TV presenter. She comes home to this, they live in this really minimalist and very clean and Mm. sterile home. Mm -hmm. It's giant and has lots of like uh, minimalist art and stuff. And their mother comes home from surgery Mm. and she's wearing this sort of uh, bandages all over her face. And as the movie sort of progresses, you get the feeling that uh, two young boys don't think it's their mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's this really quite drawn-out psychological drama and, and thriller sort of aspect of it sort of plays out throughout the movie. That's almost like an opposite changeling situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the uh, kid's not been switched out, it's their parents. It's their mother. And there's a lot of sort of elements in the movie which makes you doubt whether it's real, whether it's a dream. Like there's a lot of, not unreliable narrator because there's no narrator in the movie, but it plays with a lot of themes that um, a movie like The Lighthouse, for instance, mm. which I recently watched, also does very well, mm. where it, it's sort of up to the viewer to interpret the scenes. Mm. There's a sort of revelation towards the end that also makes you question a lot of stuff. But it's a great, great movie. It's 
extremely well shot. The cinematography is beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's really beautiful. And it really plays well with themes of um, the sort of sterile and cleanliness and the mother being very distant and weird. Mm. And yeah, it's it's a great unpleasant watch. So that's well, my recommendation. When is it from and who's it by? It's from 2014. It's actually an Austrian movie, not German. Directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. Yeah, I have heard of it. I'm a bit interested to see it, but I haven't seen it yet. So no, it's, it's great. If you want, like, uh, if you're in a sort of a horror mood, but you don't want a slasher or something, then mm. yeah, do watch that. Great stuff. So, Thomas, do you have any recommendations? I do actually um, have a recommendation. Amazing. And it's one of the things that I find most difficult to watch. It's a documentary short. And I'm, uh, I'm just unable to watch this without tearing up. It's called Child of Rage, A Story of Abuse. It's about a young girl who's been abused till she was about 19 months old by her father. The, 19 the months? Yeah. Jesus Christ. So the mother died very early. It's her and her brother. And the father's out of the picture. They've been moved to a new family who's trying to take care of them, like a loving family. This is sort of, a, this is not uh, fictional. No, this, this is, is a documentary shot. Yeah, yeah. And it starts off with these uh, therapy sessions where you see a therapist talking to the young girl. And um, she's become extremely abusive. They have to lock her up in the night or else she will go around and she'll stab her parents. And she's, she's conducting both sexual and physical abuse towards her younger brother. She talks about it so calmly. The therapist is asking her, all right, and, and why do they lock you up? What would you do? Do you want to cause violence? And she just says, yes, I do this and that. And she's very calm, like, I guess what you would call a, a child psychopath. Right. And, uh, and it's just about, you know, talking with her sort about her... flat emotions yeah. uh, when considering uh, this. Very flat, but also very honest. She speaks so revealingly about why she wants to hurt her brother, for example. Right. Because and why is that? She, yeah, because she's in pain. She's been abused. Yeah. And she says it flat out like that. And she's very clear about her own troubled situation. It's like, I mean, it's 20, 20 minutes long and it's these therapy sessions and it talks about both her relationship but also her process of uh, healing her. And um, it ends after a, a while when she's been in therapy and she's, you know, she's become much better. She's no longer murdering animals. Uh, just as a side note, her brother's head has, has been so badly damaged, it's malformed. I'm not sure if that's her or the father, but, you know, it's, let's just say it's a severe... This is really severe. She's diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, or RAD, as it's called. What's that? She's incapable of touching with people, I guess, that she's just emotionally completely... She's just projecting the, the violence and she doesn't... She has no empathy. There's nothing... Yeah, right. It's, it does sound a lot like uh, antisocial uh, behavior mm. syndrome uh, or uh, whatever. They replaced uh, psychopathy and sociopathy yeah. with uh, the clinical term. That sounds really brutal to watch. But it's almost <laughs> worse at the end. Okay. Because she's been in therapy now for a while and she's uh, she's functions a lot better. They talk to her about her previous behavior and she she's now she's developed empathy and um, she's so regretful and so sad about what she's done. Yeah. She kind of breaks down and it's really, really hard to watch. Oh, that sounds uh, sad. And, uh, you know, she, she, she grew up and became um, a nurse and quite well-functioning right. uh, in society. I mean, there's more or less a happy end, but I mean, it's very interesting psychologically and really a rough watch. You know, it's on YouTube. It, I think it was just a segment of a television documentary series right. or something. Just search for Child of Rage, uh, a story of abuse. Yeah. There's also a fiction film. I haven't seen it. It's probably not, not so good, but Based this on is it. amazing. It's heartbreaking and very, very strong. Yeah. yeah. Antisocial personality disorder was what I think what I was thinking about. Mm. And we, we've discussed this previously mm. in terms of abuse and stuff and in terms of psychopathy and mm. sociopathy that often if you deal with it at a young enough age, it yeah. can be reversed yeah. and dealt with. Mm. But when it's left untreated, it can really fester and just ruin you permanently. Yeah. Conceivably, there's a certain age when you pass that then healing disorder is, is more or less you know if not impossible very 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 difficult yeah i do think it's i really like the past few years i feel there's been a lot more focus in general in the public mm. about just psychic health like just mental health and i feel that's quite helpful like in in cases like this it's so incredibly important to deal with it and like you i find these sort of um these themes very interesting like documentaries and stuff 
But again, like watching stuff about abuse, it's always it, it can be rough. Like I find that a lot more rougher than watching violent stuff. Yeah, it's it's so raw in it a is. way. Yeah, because I mean, I'd, I'd seen this a while back, and then when I rewatched it for now, I just <laughs> there's not a lot of things by this point that really tear me up as a you know in terms of uh, film yeah. uh, medium <laughs> that makes you actually emotional. Yeah, well, emotion is one thing, but it's it's just really difficult, I think. Yeah, I forgot to say this is um, it's from 1992, so it's an older. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's that stuff like that is difficult. But I also think it's important. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's it for today. Yeah. Um, thank you for spending your quality time, your precious time with yeah. with us, listening to us talk about horrible things. Yeah. <laughs> And beautiful it things. Be, it can be interesting and pleasant to talk about unpleasant subjects. Yeah. So the music for this episode was made by Umulium. It's called Dark Future, and it's composed by Slade Ogor and Yu Skarning. That's right. And you can get in touch with us at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. And if you're interested, we have a list over at Mubi where we've gathered a bunch of unpleasant films. You can go over and see what other things we recommend. There's a lot of good movies there. Yeah. It's a growing list, so we're still adding things as it goes along. Definitely worth checking out. Probably there's a, like a hundred films, but there's a lot more to talk about. Anyway, so the next film we'll be watching is I Stand Alone by Gaspar Noé, which is also part of this French movement. And we're going to follow that up with his next feature, Irreversible, so the next two films. And they kind of connect... They're very interesting to see uh, up next to each other. But uh, I had the idea that um, we should start to focus a little bit on specific filmmakers and s- several of their films and seeing them in context that might be interesting. Yes, yeah, it can be very interesting to view filmmakers' works and compare and contrast them. So yeah, that'll be interesting. So thank you for now and have a lovely day. Yes, have a pleasant day, night or afternoon, wherever you may be. And... We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.